Hi everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. Growing up as a product of New England, this fun fact about myself might not seem too surprising to hear. My entire education, barring my college experience, which was admittedly in the South, was that of the Catholic school nature. From pre-K through 12th grade, I was in a carefully pressed and pointedly measured uniform with a skirt that always extended to my knee whenever a religious was around. I ate fish every Friday of Lent for more years than I cared to remember. Definitely did not receive a comprehensive and compassionate sexual education. And I knew the books of the Bible as well as I knew the alphabet, thanks to some admittedly catchy rhymes. I've been educated by the Sisters of Mercy, learned from the Christian brothers, and even had some Franciscans walking the halls of my elementary school with their cream-colored vestments and wooden rosary beads swaying as they passed. I was, as the saying goes, a good Catholic schoolgirl. This week on Dark as Hell, I'm telling you a story about another good Catholic schoolgirl. One so good, she became a nun. But this isn't just the story of Sister Kathy Sesnick. This story also involves many, many other good Catholic schoolgirls, most who knew and loved Sister Kathy, and almost all of them students at Archbishop Keogh High School in Baltimore, Maryland. And most of these girls suffered terrible, terrible violence at the hands of those in positions of power, influence, and supposedly piousness. This isn't just a case about a ruthless, senseless murder. It's about the extensive cover-up of this murder that's been allowed to take place and the 50 years that many Baltimore organizations have spent turning their gaze heavenward when asked, why, oh why, have you forsaken Kathy Sesnick and the survivors of Keogh? I think it's about time to start asking some hashtag questions. Forgive me, Father. I have not sinned, but I'm telling the truth about those who seem to have done just that through their most grievous, grievous fault. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. understand the underlying themes of this case, we need to talk about one thing in particular, Baltimore's historically close ties to Catholicism. Today's case is a double whammy in religion class and history class, which seems appropriate given the school-based nature of it. Just for instance, look at the name of the state Baltimore is the capital of, Maryland. Break that down, and it is literally Maryland. It's officially named after England's King Charles I's wife, Henrietta Maria of France, though she was more regularly known in England as Queen Mary. Cecilus Calvert, the second Lord Baltimore, assumed the charter that his father, the first Lord Baltimore, had received prior to his death. In 1634, Cecilus founded the setting for our story today. Going back to the whole name thing, the original capital was even named St. Mary's City until Baltimore became the capital in 1695. However, I'm going to hazard a guess that these settlers weren't mad about the idea that the state and its first settlement could have been seen as being named in honor of Mary, the Virgin Mother. Because if nothing else, Maryland was for the Catholics. Now, historically speaking, nobody really 
liked the Catholics back in ye olden days. Maryland was founded for the sole purpose of providing a safe haven for England's Catholics who were looking to escape Protestant oppression and intolerance. As such, Maryland, and particularly Baltimore, has a long, long history of being a heavily Catholic area. And it's something that carries on today. Catholicism in Baltimore wasn't just about a religious identity. It was a cultural, social, and even a political facet of life for those living within this community. Even today, Baltimore's archdiocese has the distinction of being the oldest in America. And in the eyes of the church, as Laura Bassett from the Huffington Post reports, it's considered the premier Catholic jurisdiction in the country. Now, let me just say from the jump, like any good, albeit formerly practicing Catholic, I am afraid of the Catholic church. <laughs> The both imagined and witnessed power that this organization wields, the fanaticism it can unleash in some of its most fervent followers, and the whispered about deeds done in its name, the underbelly of the Catholic Church and its tangled web constructed over the years, yeah, it all absolutely puts the fear of God and just fear in general into me and my soul. I have read the Da Vinci Code, damn it. I am no fool. Throughout history, when the church is threatened, the church is known to bite back. Their bark and their bite has proven to be pretty vicious over the millennia. That said, I am towing several very delicate lines in telling this story because, as we'll come to see, the church plays a pivotal role in the devoutly Catholic community of Baltimore. And not only that, it damn near stars in our story today. Some might even say, the church is the villain of our story. The year was 1969, and it was as tumultuous a time in America as any. The Vietnam War was still underway, and by that I mean it was failing. Woodstock was grooving along with the counterculture movement. The Zodiac Killer was on the loose, as were the members of the Manson family. And hell, Richard Nixon was president. Despite all of this, though, at 1201 Canton Avenue in Baltimore, Maryland, stood one of the most regionally prestigious all-girls Catholic schools, Archbishop Keogh High School. Within its walls, 26-year-old Sister Kathy Sesnick, she of the School Sisters of Notre Dame, was a teacher. Keogh, as alumni called it before its merger with Seton High School in 1988, was considered the jewel of the diocese, what with its state-of-the-art facilities and rigorous academic standards. The private school preached a message of guiding its young women towards reaching their full potential, and it was run almost entirely by the nuns from the Sisters of Notre Dame order who sought to instilling that belief. Sister Kathy was one of the youngest teachers, and many of the alumna of the late 60s saw her as a sort of big sister figure. She was said to be, quote, a spirit of compassion and kindness, she was engaging and encouraging with her girls, creating challenging vocabulary games in the classroom, and having an open-door policy at her apartment for anyone who needed her help outside the classroom. And more than once, she was described as being, quote, really cool, especially with her lessons about the scarlet letter in her English classes and the time she took her students to see the movie production of Romeo and Juliet after they had finished reading the play together. Many former students told stories about how warm and genial she was, how freely they felt they could speak with her, and there has long been a general theme of how trustworthy and relatable she proved herself to be, even in spite of her role as their teacher. The girls of Keo knew that she was someone that they could come to for guidance, 
a laugh, advice, or just simply a listening ear. These characteristics of this beloved English teacher are why so many of these Keogh students of 1969 did trust her, especially that year. That year when it became apparent that Sister Kathy, she knew the horrors that so many of them were living through. And some of those horrors were within those same hallowed halls of the Archdiocese's prized possession. Now, I said that Archbishop Keogh was almost entirely run by the School Sisters of Notre Dame. There were Keogh community members who weren't part of that order, though. In fact, they weren't even nuns. They were priests, and there were two of them. There was Father Neil Magnus, who was the Director of Religious Studies for all of the students. He oversaw things like the content of the girls' religious studies, organizing ministry works, things of that nature. And then there was Maskell. Father A. Joseph Maskell, known more regularly as Father Joseph Maskell or just Father Maskell, was the chaplain at Keogh. Chaplains, for those who are unfamiliar, they play the role of spiritual guidance counselor, which seemed to be right up his alley, since Maskell was said to be, quote, deeply fascinated by psychology. So much so that he got his degree in the field from Towson and later received a certificate for counseling from Johns Hopkins. He had the full support of the administration of the nuns at Keogh to be serving in this role, though, and they approved the counseling that he provided the girls with as their chaplain. And Maskell wasn't only the chaplain at Keogh. He was the chaplain for the city of Baltimore's police force. He served as the chaplain for the Maryland State Police as well. And he was even the chaplain for both the Maryland National Guard and the Air National Guard. All of these roles, it should be noted, he served in while also working at Keogh. A few members of the Baltimore police force thought of him as, quote, just like any other member of the police force, what with how close and friendly he was with officers. In fact, he used to go on ride-alongs with cops for fun, and he would participate in target shooting practices with his officer friends, even while some of them were on duty. He was known to keep a police scanner and a loaded gun in his car as well, truly making himself out to be a sort of priest cop, it seems. These friendships were probably made all the more easier to strike up in the first place, since Maskell's brother Tommy was on the Baltimore force himself. Maskell seemed to have a lot of friends, connections that he'd made over the years from the, shall we say, number of parishes and schools he had served. In 1965, he was assigned to the Sacred Heart of Mary community, and one year later, he was assigned to the, be the associate pastor at St. Clement's Parish, where he also oversaw the Boy Scout troop there. In 1967, he was assigned to Archbishop Keogh to serve as the chaplain for the girls there, while still serving as pastor for St. Clement's though he was transferred from both to the Catholic Archdiocese Division a few years later in 75. Maskell received a number of other assignments over the years, including one at the Church of Annunciation in 1980-82. to 82. He served at Holy Cross Parish for his longest consecutive stint, which was 10 years, and he was there from 82 to 1992. The Archdiocese even sent him over to Ireland for a period of time, wouldn't you know? I think that's actually more Canadian or Wisconsin than Irish. I'm so sorry. <laughs> While in Ireland, he lived in Castlebridge, which is a small village just outside of the bustling town of Wexford. But strangely enough, when he first arrived in 1994, Maskell never made his presence known to the diocese there, the Diocese of Ferns, 
until he said mass at one of the community's parishes in the stead of its regular pastor. As it goes, priests typically are required, or at least recommended, to alert a diocese of their presence if they intend to serve in their pastoral role while visiting or traveling somewhere outside of their own parish. So it was admittedly across the board strange that he didn't do so. Maskell claimed that he wasn't actually serving in a church capacity while in Ireland, even if he did hope to say mass here and there while he was on the Emerald Isle. He was actually working as a clinical psychologist for Ireland's Southeastern Health Board. At least he was from April of 1995 until November of that same year. He stayed in the Wexford community for another three years, though, working in his own private practice as a psychologist for troubled youth until 1998 when he returned to the States. He was a man about town, Maskell. Six different local parishes in the Baltimore area and three years abroad even. Quite the career for a priest. And it's interesting, you know, this role that he played over those years. Chaplain, someone who was supposed to support the well-being of their charges holistically, including their social, emotional, and spiritual health. It's interesting because Maskell didn't quite fit the personality type for the job. He was known to inspire fear as opposed to trust, despite being in this counselor role. He was said to have a coldness about him, maybe from the influence and power that he knew he wielded with all of his connections. And he certainly didn't seem to shy away from that archetype of priest who truly sees himself as an extension of God. Father Maskell was supposed to guide, counsel, and spiritually advise those most vulnerable in his community. That's the role of a chaplain, after all. Nowhere in the description of the role, though, does it say chaplains are supposed to violate, abuse, and traumatize their charges in a years-long twisted regime that warped repentance into victim-blaming violence. But that's exactly what Maskell did. And he did it for years. I also want to make it a point to say that's going to be the last time I refer to him as father. I can very comfortably say he's not worthy of the name. Now, before we discuss anything any further, I want to offer a trigger warning. Today's case could be uniquely upsetting to some because of the specifically fucked up nature of its crimes, namely sexual abuse against children committed by church officials. It's no secret anymore how long the sordid history is of Catholic priests being allowed to regularly and without consequence abuse children. And if they did see punishment, it was usually in the form of being bounced from parish to parish, which typically backfired since it only usually resulted in a whole new batch of victims being traumatized. The 2017 documentary, The Keepers, was an incredible resource for this week's research, especially since it provided firsthand accounts from some of Maskell's victims. I highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it yet, but be warned, it's brutal at times. My hope today is to share some of the victims' accounts that I heard in the documentary, but to do so in a way that is frank and honest without crossing over into too much upsetting detail. That said, the year was 1969, and Sister Kathy was starting to realize that for the last year, something very, very wrong had been happening, had been happening to her girls, and there was one girl in particular that she was worried about. The year before, in 1968, 14-year-old Jean Hardigan was troubled. 
She and her 10 siblings had been raised in a devoutly Catholic family and as a good Catholic schoolgirl, she knew the benefit of receiving the Sacrament of Reconciliation or what's more commonly known as going to confession. Now, when you go to confession, you essentially tell a priest the sins that you've committed that are weighing on you. And through the screen that separates the priest from the penitent, you are guided to a state of reconciliation with some scripture, general counsel, and you're given a penance to perform to further exemplify your desire to be one with God and the church in a graceful state once again. The priest absolves you and you're sent on your way. Now, Jean at the time, she felt that she needed to receive reconciliation because she was carrying guilt on her conscience. Guilt that she felt was her own fault because she had been a victim of molestation at the hands of her uncle. This, I unfortunately have to assure you, will not be the first instance in our story of the concept of Catholic guilt being warped into a tool used to abuse. As it was, Jean found herself in a confessional at Keogh, where she was a sophomore at the time, confessing the, air quotes, sins that she felt were her fault and that subsequently caused her uncle to abuse her. On the other side of the screen sat an intently listening Father Neil Magnus. As she shared her guilt, Magnus was quiet, but she could still hear him doing something. It would only be later in life that she realized while she confessed what happened to her at the hands of her uncle, the priest beside her was masturbating. And it shouldn't need to be said, but this is not exactly the kosher norm when it comes to confession being heard. According to Jean, after she shared the details of the abuse that she had suffered, Magnus asked her what her name was and if he could look at her. Being 14 and already a God-fearing Catholic, Jean felt uncomfortable, but allowed Magnus to do away with the screen, and they came face to face. After another long moment of silence, Magnus announced to Jean that, quote, I don't know if God can forgive this. You made those things happen. And guys, honestly, just prepare yourselves to scream both internally and externally through this whole thing, because the religious hypocrisy simply gets fucking worse from here. Magnus told Jean that he needed time to reflect on all that she had told him and to contemplate if there even was a possibility that she could be absolved of these sins that she had, again, air quotes, caused. He shamed and he scared her. And for weeks, Jean worried about what was going to happen to her and by extension, her immortal soul. What if she couldn't be forgiven? What would happen to her then? And then... Finally, after weeks of agonizing about her fate, Magnus approached her yet again. And that's when the abuse at both Magnus and Maskell's hands started. The priest, and Maskell in particular, claimed that the sex acts they were forcing her to commit were, quote, therapy that was focused on Jean, quote, getting better. They went so far as to claim that their actions were, again, quote, Sacramental. Maskell claimed that his semen was at times the Eucharist and forced Jean to swallow it, claiming that doing so was cleansing her since she was now filled with the Holy Spirit. Both men used to pray over her while simultaneously sexually abusing her. And let me be clear. Jean was violated. She was assaulted. She was raped. All of this abuse was done at the hands of priests. And 
other people in positions of power. Because also, unfortunately, Jean wasn't the only one being abused. She was simply one of many Keo girls who would fall into the clutches of Maskell's particularly manipulative tactics. Using his background in psychology, Maskell would target the most vulnerable girls, those who had already experienced abuse, girls from broken homes, or students who were simply having a tough go at the moment. And he meticulously would groom and prey upon them for his own twisted means by saying his abuse was actually a means of bringing the Holy Spirit to them, or it was granting them forgiveness from God for their various sins. Not only did Maskell abuse Keo girls, but he straight up trafficked them. He was known to bring other men into his fold that met in his office on campus, and he allowed them access to the girls who they then abused as well. He used his office at the other parish he served at St. Clemens as a location where these men could, sometimes in exchange for money, violate and abuse the girls. These predators were local entrepreneurs, community politicians, other priests, one who only went by the name Brother Bob was known to be especially violent, and perhaps most terrifyingly of all, even police officers would commit these acts of violence, assault, and abuse all while wearing their uniforms. One survivor, Teresa Lancaster, recalls Maskell picking her and one of her friends up on Halloween night, claiming that he was going to be taking the girls on a, quote, Halloween run. Teresa's parents had already been duped into trusting Maskell. He had them convinced that he was paying special attention to their daughter in an effort to, quote, save her from the long-haired boy that she was dating and also protecting her from the marijuana that had been discovered in her room. Thus far into, quote, saving her, Maskell had forced Teresa to sit naked on his lap in his office on school grounds. He had a local gynecologist, Dr. Christian Richter, in his pocket. This relationship allowed him to attend unnecessary gynecological exams. He was given access to the materials needed to force douching sessions, enemas, and suppositories on various girls. And for Teresa in particular, he had gone so far as to get his hands on the powerful drug Thorazine, telling her parents his background in psychology led him to believe she was schizophrenic and needed this prescription. That Halloween night, though, Maskell's relationships were shown for how insidious they truly were. He drove the two girls out to a lover's lane where police were already breaking up some couples who had gathered. Two officers on the scene approached Maskell, greeting him. And at that point, Teresa's friend is forced out of the car. The officers replaced the friend, and as Maskell stood outside of the car, the two policemen raped Teresa. Other survivors would come to share stories with similar threads, the unethical pelvic exams and, quote, pregnancy checks that Maskell performed in his office and at Richter's, the other clergy, the police officers, and local individuals of influence who were brought into the abuse ring, the desecration of the sacraments by claiming that sexual abuse was a means of cleansing the spirit, of invoking the Holy Spirit, the fact that Maskell seemed to favor calling all of his victims whores. So many victims had experiences that could have mirrored the other's stories. But none of them would know that yet, despite the fact that there was a communal understanding that something was happening to the girls of Keo. There was almost a pattern that began to occur, a pattern that victims came to notice and identify with, even if they weren't the ones being summoned to Maskell's office. 
According to Teresa, quote, when you were called over the loudspeaker to report to Father Maskell, a dead silence would come over the classroom and other girls would look at you with sad eyes and the teacher would just look down. They knew something was going on. There was a communal understanding that something was happening and yet nobody spoke about it. The silent complicity of the teachers who may have suspected spoke to the fear that they also felt when it came to Maskell and his cronies. There was a rampant fear of rebuking these abusers who saw themselves as godlike figures, these men who had manipulated and shamed and terrified so many. The girls of Keogh were terrified, and Sister Kathy knew why. Sister Kathy, the confidant of so many Keogh students, had come to know explicitly that Maskell was abusing girls. There are at least three former student survivors who confirmed that they told Sister Kathy what was happening to them. Jean Hardigan claims that she had a few interactions where Sister Kathy approached her. On one occasion, Sister Kathy saw her go into Maskell's office and later remarked that she hadn't known Jean needed Maskell's, quote, services. It was clear that she had begun to notice the sense of panic that seemed to fill a girl whenever she was called to Maskell's office. With these suspicions, she also began to cover for girls when she could, according to Kathy Hobeck, another Maskell survivor. On one occasion, when Kathy herself was called to the office, Sister Kathy claimed that she was being sent home since it was already after school dismissal. And I have to wonder if this direct defiance of Maskell began to raise his own suspicions. Slowly, Sister Kathy began gathering more information and more trust from her students. One student even admitted to Sister Kathy that on one occasion, quote, Maskell got physical after a trip to his office for a supposed counseling session. Sister Kathy knew what was happening. Towards the end of the school year in May or June of 1969, Sister Kathy was in her classroom alone with Jean. She told Jean that she didn't have to answer directly, that she simply could shake her head yes or no, but she had a question for her. Was someone doing something to her that she wasn't comfortable with? Were the priests hurting her? Jean shook her head yes. Apparently, Sister Kathy could only gasp, quote, oh dear God, I thought as much, she told Jean. And then she made a promise to her student, quote, I'm going to take care of this. When school began again in the fall of 1969, Sister Kathy was no longer at Archbishop Keogh, though. And somehow, despite her promises to deal with the matter at the end of the previous school year, Maskell's abuse became even worse when the new academic year started and his victims returned. The official storyline is that Sister Kathy and another nun, Sister Russell Phillips, had been approved by their mother superior to conduct an experiment of sorts. Instead of remaining at Archbishop Keogh, the two were seeing what it would be like for nuns to teach at a public school, an experiment of blending the secular with the religious. It's interesting timing to be sure though. Interesting enough where I have to ask, had Sister Kathy really approached her mother superior about leaving Archbishop Keogh to conduct this experiment? Or had Sister Kathy been sent away from Keogh? and from the girls that she was trying to protect. The first week of November 1969 proved to be a busy one for Sister Kathy. Her younger sister Marilyn had just gotten engaged and she had plans to pick up an engagement present for her on that Friday, November 7th. However, two things of note happened before that day. 
At least two days before the 7th, Kathy Hobeck claims that she shared with Sister Kathy that she was also suffering sexual abuse at the hands of Maskell. Though she didn't even work at Keogh anymore, Sister Kathy made a similar promise to the one that she had made to Jean. Quote, it's going to be dealt with. The next night, November 6th, Sister Kathy had a visitor at her apartment complex, the Carriage House Apartments in Cantonsville, that she shared with Sister Russell. The visitor was a Keogh student who had brought her boyfriend with her to the apartment. The student, who has never been publicly identified, was telling Sister Kathy about her own abuse when suddenly Maskell and Magnus burst into the room and they looked furious. Now, how Maskell and Magnus came to be at Sister Kathy's doorstep right when an abuse victim was at her apartment telling her about her experiences, that's never been explained. I have my own theory, but in my mind, the timing is too perfect. It's too coincidental any way you frame it. And I don't think there was any divine intervention bringing this confrontation about either. Sister Kathy was able to get the student and her boyfriend safely out of her apartment, but the next day, over the loudspeaker once again, this student was called to Maskell's office. When she arrived, Maskell allegedly held his ever-present gun in his hand, and he made one statement. Quote, if you say anything, I'll kill both of you and your families. The anonymous student speaking to the Huffington Post said, quote, that I remember as though it happened yesterday because I have been protecting my family ever since. That day was Friday, November 7th. It would later come to be known as the day that Sister Kathy disappeared. November 7th seemed, for all appearances, to be just like any other day. Let me take you through it. At the end of the school day at about 2.30, Sister Kathy shared with the student, Juliana Farrell, that she was going shopping that night for an engagement present for her sister. She's assumed to have arrived back at her apartment at the carriage house complex by around three o'clock. Sometime at or just after 7 p.m., she left the apartment and drove the 1.9 miles to the Edmondson Village Shopping Center to complete her errands. We know for a fact that she cashed her $255 paycheck at the local bank and she picked up bakery rolls at Muley's Bakery. It's here though that stories begin to vary because here is where we are only left to wonder if she ever made it back to her car or her apartment of her own volition. At 8.30 p.m., an apartment neighbor, a flight attendant tending to things in her own car, claims that she saw Kathy in her car at the apartment parking lot. At around the same time, a student of Sister Kathy's, Mary Spence, was in the neighborhood to, quote, spy on a male teacher with one of her friends. She claims that, well, on this silly escapade, she and her friend heard yelling coming from the direction of where she knew Sister Kathy's apartment was. She claimed, quote, it was a man's voice, loud and booming. We really thought it was some kind of violence and it scared us off. Though she was allegedly spotted in the parking lot, another fact that we have from that night is that Sister Kathy never actually went back to her apartment unit. And this was something that alarmed her roommate, Sister Russell. Four hours later at 11 p.m., which was much longer than Kathy should have needed to complete her errands, Sister Russell was frantic, so she decided to call for help. However, she didn't call the police. Instead, she called Father Jerry Koob, a close friend of Sister Kathy's. Now, it's been speculated over the years about what the true nature of Kathy and Jerry's relationship was. Jerry claims that they were very close platonic friends, though he did admit to proposing to her at one point, 
And we do have letters of a distinctly romantic nature that Kathy wrote to him. So suffice to say, he was clearly someone very important to Kathy. The other thing that's speculated about, why did Sister Russell call a friend instead of the police? It's something we can't even ask her about since she passed away in 2001. It's just one more unanswered question among so many within this case. As it was at 11 p.m., Russell called Jerry Koob, who had just returned home after spending a night on the town with another priest, Brother Peter McKeon. The two had enjoyed a viewing of Easy Rider at a local movie theater, and they had had dinner as well before returning to their rectory. Upon getting the call from Russell that Kathy hadn't yet returned home for the evening, Jerry and Peter immediately piled back into their car and drove over to the apartment complex in Cantonsville. According to Jerry, the three spent about 45 or 60 minutes in discussion about what could have happened and what all was going on. Finally, at about 1 a.m., Jerry suggested that it was time to call the police. By 1.30 a.m., a police officer had arrived on the scene, though he didn't seem too troubled by the news a nun was missing. He did a cursory search of the complex, jotted down some basic information, and left almost as quickly as he came. Most likely still hoping Kathy was going to turn up safely and momentarily, the three didn't know what else to do except to hold the small mass, which Jerry said. They even saved a piece of communion for Kathy. At 4 a.m., Jerry and Peter were still at the complex, and they decided to take a walk outside to clear their heads. And as they stepped out into the dark early morning, that was when something oddly familiar caught their eye. There was the familiar side of Kathy's car, but oddly, it was parked across the street from the complex in an even odder position, almost in the middle of the street, and its end was legally jutting out into the intersecting road. The priests approached the, approached the car, and they were met still with even stranger things to see. The car was muddy. There was debris strewn all over it, both externally and internally. There were twigs sticking out of the interior of the car in odd positions and stranger angles. The tires were coated with mud and grass. The Ford Maverick was unlocked, and the two men could see the box of buns that Kathy had gotten earlier in the evening, and the fact that her keys were still in the ignition. So they had found the car, at least. But now the question was, where was Sister Kathy? It's... Not very often nuns make the headlines in newspapers and less frequently still that a missing nun crops up on a headline. So it wasn't a surprise when Kathy's disappearance caught the attention of many of the local journalists. For days, the Baltimore Sun and a slew of other local papers focused on the disappearance with headlines like, quote, city police search for missing nun, 26 officers combing area with canine core dogs, showing up on the residents' doorsteps to shock them each morning over their coffee. What really shocked the city, though, was another disappearance. And this one took place four days after Kathy's and under alarmingly similar circumstances. On November 11th, 1969, another young woman was out shopping, 20-year-old Joyce Malecki. With the news of the missing nuns still looming overhead, she had been warned extensively by her brothers to be even more careful when she was leaving her job at a local liquor distributor, and her mother wasn't too pleased when she stepped out to run some errands as the sun was setting, right before she was supposed to meet her military boyfriend who was stationed at Fort Meade. Joyce would never arrive for her date. The next day on November 12th, Joyce's car was found haphazardly parked in a nondescript lot. 
her parcels and packages were still in the car, as were her keys. And it would only be two days after she had been last seen on November 13th, 1969, that Joyce's body would be found. Actually on Fort Meade, partially in the water of a small river that ran through the base's training area. Two hunters had made the discovery, and when she was found, her hands had been, quote, tied behind her back and with scratches and bruises on her body, indicating she had struggled with her assailant. There was a single, deep wound to her throat that seemed to have come from a knife, but the autopsy later determined that wasn't the cause of death. Joyce had either been strangled or she had drowned. Since her body had been found on land belonging to Fort Meade and thus making it federal land, the case was turned over to the FBI. The Baltimore police puzzled over it from a distance because what were the odds that two young, noticeably pretty women who had been out shopping would go missing within days of each other? One had turned up dead in just two days, and it had been six days since Kathy had last been seen. Was she going to be found next? In a phrase, she would. Yes. But not for another two months. On the morning of January 3rd, 1970, just four days shy of two months into Sister Kathy's disappearance, Captain Bud Romer, the commander of what was known as the M Squad on the Baltimore County Police Force, M for murder and all that. They were the major crimes unit when he got right down to it. Romer received a telephone call. On the other end of the line was Officer James Scannell, and he could barely get the words out as he spoke. Two hunters who had been in a particularly isolated wooded area of the Lansdowne neighborhood just 20 miles outside of Baltimore had called in about seeing what they thought was a woman's body in a spot usually known for being a bit of a garbage dump and where you might go to burn some trash. Within minutes, Romer and others on the M squad had piled into squad cars and drove out to the area Skinnell said he was waiting at. Romer got out of his car on a day that he recounted to Baltimore Sun reporter Ted Nugent was, quote, cold as a son of a bitch, and he approached the small snow-covered hill. He could see a blue coat and a purse laying nearby, and as he drew closer still and began to fully take in the scene before him, he said with a sense of simple yet unshakable conviction. Hello, Kathy Sesnick. Sister Kathy had been found. The deputy medical examiner at the time, a young man who happened to be named Dr. Vernish Spitz, returned the autopsy report more quickly than usual at the behest of the police. He determined through his autopsy that Kathy had died due to a blunt force trauma that fractured her skull and ultimately caused an intracerebral hemorrhage. By Romer's estimation, the blow might have been, quote, dealt by a hammer, or maybe a tire iron. Or, when circling back to his initial hunch that Kathy had been killed by someone she knew, Romer theorized that, quote, maybe it was a priest's ring, one of those heavy gold rings a lot of Catholic priests wear. Priest's ring would make a hole like that if he hit her hard enough. As the few facts of what had now turned into a murder case came together, Romer and his team began to believe that Kathy hadn't been a victim of a random killing. No, even though they had barely been able to find a trace of a clue over the last two months since Sister Kathy had last been seen alive, they were firm in their belief that she had been killed by someone she knew. How else would you explain the mysterious appearance of her car, though not in its assigned parking spot? It was still only just parked across the street from her apartment. It went against all logic. The killer could have been seen driving her car or worse yet, seen leaving it at the apartment. 
usually it would be expected that the assailant would want to stay as far away as possible from any landmarks or locations that would link them to the victim. So again, the police asked, why would their killer essentially return Sister Kathy's car to her apartment? And why do it in a way that made it almost guaranteed to be found with the way it was so illegally parked? Almost immediately, the investigation turned to Sister Russell, Father Jerry, and Brother Peter. Police were confused and not just a little suspicious. Why was it that Russell had called Jerry instead of police when Kathy never returned home on November 7th? What sense did that make? Romer in particular focused on Jerry Koob, finding the Jesuits' relationship with Kathy questionable. Though Jerry produced movie ticket stubs from the Easy Rider viewing he and Peter McKeon had seen earlier in the night that Kathy had disappeared, several other officers, including Officer Nick Giangrasso, who had led the investigation into Kathy's initial disappearance, they all found Jerry's story and friendship with Kathy suspect. Romer claimed that after finding a letter from Kathy that had been mailed just a few days before she disappeared and referenced a physical relationship between the two, he claimed that Koob, quote, allegedly broke down and admitted he was having sex with the nun. Today, Jerry Koob is now a Methodist minister and he's married, and he claims that he never had sex with Kathy and that he only ever proposed marriage to her in the event that they both decided to leave religious life. It's unclear which version of events is the truth, even so many years later. It's just one of the few, he said, she said, instances of this case. And the police believed Jerry had a lot more that he wasn't saying. When it came to the issue of the letter, Romer claimed that he didn't care about the particular nuances of their relationship, even if it did break the celibacy vow that Catholic religious are expected to adhere to. However, what did alarm him about this alleged confession was the underlying threat it contained. Quote, that the Catholic Church would have a whole lot to lose if that letter should ever get out. Like I said at the beginning of today's story, the Catholic Church does not like to be threatened. And any indication that things were amiss within the church, and of course within its crown jewel of a diocese, well, there's a reason, according to Officer Harry Bannon in the Baltimore City Paper, that, quote, the church lawyers stepped in, and they talked to the higher-ups the police department, and we were told, either charge Coop with a crime or let him go. Stop harassing him. It was similar to the line that was fed to the police who were insisting on trying to speak to another priest who had known Kathy, Joseph Maskell. John Grasso had tried and failed several times to get a hold of Maskell during the disappearance investigation, but for whatever reason, the priest was able to elude him. According to John Grasso, speaking to the Huffington Post, quote, Maskell was always busy and never available. It got to the point that he was the number one guy we wanted to talk to, but we never got a chance. Strange that the priest who pretended to be a police officer with his friends on the force suddenly didn't want to play ball anymore. Assisting with a legitimate murder investigation should have just been quite the thing that Maskell would have wanted to be involved with when he wasn't having a few beers with his BCPD buddies or tagging along on ride-alongs. In fact, James Scannell, the officer who was first on the scene where Kathy's body was found, he was that same officer who had described Maskell as being, quote, just like any other member of the police force. The concept of police looking out for their own, it isn't an unfamiliar one, especially during this time when police impropriety, brutality, and misconduct is having a real moment of reckoning in this country. 
So when Gian Grasso back in 69 and 70 says that he learned that not only was Maskell a friend to the force, but that his own brother was a lieutenant, he quote, knew we had a problem. The problem extended to the investigation into other clergy members as a whole in general. There was an unspoken sense that if a priest was being questioned about the case, or any case, it shouldn't be for too long, or at all, if given the option. Gian Grasso reported that he felt pressured by his superiors and other higher-ups in the chain of command to avoid looking into the community priests altogether, or to move on quickly if they did question them. He went so far as to say that, quote, I felt like the church was coming in and interfering. Things became even more suspicious when another organization stepped in. This time it was the Baltimore County Police Force, and they were very politely requesting that the city lay off the case and hand it over. The location where Kathy's body had been found was outside of the city's jurisdiction, so they were forced to turn over their investigation. And don't forget, Masco was county's chaplain at the time, too. It was all too conveniently tidy looking, and there were too many connections, and most of them seemed to lead back to Maskell and Archbishop Keough High School. It was a tangled web of strategic connections, a game of who's who, and an exercise in remaining quiet. Romer put it best when he spoke to Ted Nugent in 2005, quote, no, there was something going on at that school, and it all came to a head, and when it did, Sister Kathy wound up on the garbage dump with her skull caved in. The more you look at the Cessnick murder case, the more it looks like somebody was trying to cover something up. If there was a cover-up going on, it was masterfully executed. No one has ever been formally charged with Kathy's murder. But before we discuss that possibility in depth a little more, before we move forward in our story, we have to go back. Back to the week Sister Kathy disappeared because there's one more event that happened that week that I haven't told you about yet. Two days after Sister Kathy disappeared, Jean Hardigan found herself once again trapped in Maskell's office. And now a junior, she wasn't too thrown off when Maskell told her to get into his car after school so that they could go for a drive. This time though, they didn't drive to his office at St. Clement's. They didn't even drive to Jean's home, maybe as a guise to show her parents how caring Maskell was for their daughter. Instead, Maskell drove out past the city limits and finally pulled into a tucked away wooded area. He got out of the car, and without saying anything, Jean followed him through the grassy field and into the woods. And just beyond a green dumpster that sat far enough away from the road, in an area that was as nondescript as they come, that was when Jean saw the body. Jean fell to her knees, frantically brushing off the maggots that were crawling across the face of who she could see, quote, she wasn't that far gone that you couldn't tell it was her, she recently said, was Sister Kathy. She recognized the light blue coat that was still encasing her body, and as she wiped at her teacher's face, she kept repeating, help me, help me, until she looked back at an unmoving Maskell. All Maskell said was, as he leaned down to whisper in her ear, quote, you see what happens when you say bad things about people? With that threat, her mind was made up. Jean resolved never, ever to speak about what she had gone through at the hands of her supposed spiritual counselor. As she put it in that moment, quote, he terrified me to the point that I would never open my mouth. It would be over 20 years before Jean would think of that event again, because after the horrors that she had suffered at Maskell's hands, 
She couldn't stand to endure one more. Her mind could not stand suffering through one more abuse inflicted by Maskell. Jean Hardigan's memories of what happened to her and to Sister Kathy at the Archbishop Keogh would be locked away, hidden in the darkest recesses of her mind, at least until 1992. Once she graduated from Keogh and left behind the horrors of her past, Jean lived a remarkably well-adjusted life into her 30s. She got married, she had children, and as was damn near expected of Baltimoreans, she stayed involved with her Catholic faith. I think that alone speaks to the fortitude and strength our subconscious contains and a degree of that strength that most of us are never forced to tap into. It wasn't until Jean was approached by a former classmate trying to encourage her to attend her next reunion for once that she really gave another serious thought to Keogh. She knew for some inexplicable reason that she didn't have a particularly fond feeling for her high school alma mater, but since she left Keogh, she hadn't given further thought into exploring why she had such antipathy for her high school days. It was only when she did sit down to purposely mull over her time at Keogh did she remember. And she was horrified not only by what she unearthed in her memory, but so too was she scared by the fact that her memory held so many terrifying, violent experiences that she had repressed for so long. Now, repressed memory is a delicate subject, both in its essence of what it means for the person recovering them, and so too when these memories are brought forth publicly. It's hard to imagine how someone could forget such devastating abuse, and no doubt leads some to believe a person in the process of recovering memories is unreliable, unstable, or even lying. However, scientists have been studying this phenomenon for quite some time, and they do believe it's possible for the brain and subconscious to purposely lock away specific trauma-induced memories in a psychological survival tactic. Dr. Jelena Radulovic, the Dunbar professor in bipolar disease at Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine, described the repression of memories like this, quote, the brain functions in different states, much like a radio operates at FM and AM frequency bands, it's as if the brain is normally tuned to FM stations to access memories, but needs to be tuned to AM stations to access subconscious memories. If a traumatic event occurs when specifically extrasynaptic receptors are activated, the memory of this event cannot be accessed unless these receptors are activated once again, essentially tuning the brain into the AM stations. Now, when it comes to understanding the occasion of childhood trauma memories being recovered, and specifically childhood sexual abuse, the American Psychological Association supports clinicians who, quote, believe that childhood trauma may lead to problems in memory storage and retrieval. The APA also explains that these clinicians, quote, believe that dissociation is a likely explanation for a memory that was forgotten and later recalled. Dissociation means that a memory is not actually lost, but is for some time unavailable for retrieval. That is, in its memory storage, but it cannot be, for some period, actually recalled. Of course, this also raises questions about what memories are influenced, what aren't memories at all, and what memories are actually carefully crafted lies. Like I said, it's a delicate subject matter for all parties involved. As she began the work of recovering the memories and recovering from the trauma that remembering uncovered, she knew she had to approach the archdiocese to file a complaint. At this time in 1992, Maskell had been assigned to Holy Cross Parish, and he had been there since 82. 
Concerned about the threat that he posed to a parish in late June 1992, Jean approached the archdiocese looking for both guidance on how to handle the situation, both in the secular world and within her own spirituality. She was invited to a meeting in downtown Baltimore at the offices of the archdiocese. There, Jean met with Father Rick Woy, who was serving as a sort of representative for the church, and Kathy Hoskins, one of the diocese's many lawyers. After Jean relayed her story, she was told she needed to make an official statement about her abuse so that they could remove Masco from his assignment at Holy Cross. And she had to name other victims for the archdiocese to continue forward with her claim because this was the first claim of abuse anyone had ever come forward with about Maskell, according to them. The idea that Jean was expected to share the names of other students who had been abused, as if she could simply recall the names of any other students when she was only just recovering the memories of her own abuse, wasn't only stunning, it seemed horrific. Jean was already living in a personal hell as she came to terms with her own past, and she told the Archdiocese that not only could she not share any names of other students since she didn't have them, but also she would not share any names because she refused to out any other victims. Thus began a months-long back and forth between Jean and the Diocese, they, the Diocese, regularly demanding at least one other name of another masculine victim, and Jean, steadfast in her refusal to subject another former classmate who was unwilling to report her own abuse. The same dance continued through the fall and winter. In October 92, Maskell was called to a meeting downtown, much like Jean had been, and he was told that accusations claiming abuse at his hands had been brought to their attention by a former Keogh girl. He claimed his innocence, but at Archbishop William Keeler's insistence, Maskell was quietly spirited away to the Institute of Living in Connecticut. The IOL served as a psychiatric facility, and at the time, they had a specific unit to treat priests for a variety of mental health conditions. However, since the church often concealed the real reason for a priest's arrival, the IOL claims that they unwittingly housed clergy members accused of abuse or on the edge of an abuse scandal coming out. These priests would arrive under the guise of suffering a bout of depression or other emotional misconduct, as they put it, until one priest that was being treated by the head of the program, Dr. Leslie Lothstein, openly admitted to him that he had been sent to the IOL because he had had sex with a teenager. Realizing that the church was hiding pertinent information, like you fucking know why a priest was sent to them in the first place, Lothstein approached them after this particular incident, and he refused to accept another priest that the church would not give the Institute their full history. As he later claimed in the Keeper's documentary, after making this stipulation to the church, he, quote, never got another referral from the church again. And let me just make this abundantly clear. In Maskell's specific case, the archbishop knew about the accusations Jean was making. Keeler was up for a cardinal candidacy in Rome, though, and he made his choice very clear about what he would rather protect. Because by April 93, Maskell was back in Baltimore, and he'd been assigned to the parish of St. Augustine. The church would later claim that they had found no evidence of any abuse by any internal investigation that they had conducted. As one of Jean's lawyers, Beverly Wallace, put it, quote, the archdiocese stonewalled us at every turn because they refused to take action without at least one other corroborated report of abuse from Jean, and Jean still refused to give up a name of another abuse victim, both because she still didn't have one and she refused to do so on principle. 
So it was in 1993 that Jean came to an interesting idea of how to gain the necessary corroboration and to do so in a way that was by all accounts on the terms of any other victims. Thanks to some finagling by her siblings, Jean was able to get her hands on a directory of alumna from Keough, and the Hargaden family began a letter-writing campaign. They composed letters asking alumna from the pertinent years, that is, the years that Maskell worked at the school through his unceremonious departure in 75, if anyone had any information that they could share about, quote, experiences that felt inappropriate during their time at the school. The family estimates that they sent out about a thousand letters, and in August of 1993, Jean's team of lawyers, Beverly Wallace, Jim Maggio, and Phil Dantes, also placed an ad in the local paper, seeking Keough alumna to come forward regarding any, quote, sensitive information of an inappropriate nature. They included copies of the newspaper ad to several of the same Keough alumna who received letters, and just to truly cover all of their bases, Jean's lawyers tipped off a Baltimore Sun reporter about their investigation. The ad itself read, quote, anyone with info concerning improprieties of a sexual nature involving faculty or staff of the Archbishop Keough High School during the years 1968 to 1975, please contact us. In the words of Beverly Wallace, again, they, quote, had an overwhelming response to their efforts. About 40 to 50 people answered the ad in letters and all with similarly consistent threads to their story. The unethical pelvic exams that Maskell would conduct in his office the abuse inflicted by police, other clergy, and even local politicians, the graphically sexual conversations Masco would insist on having with girls, the douching sessions that they were forced into by Dr. Reichter, too many horrific instances to count, and all of them with the same underlying sense of dread as the stories connected, intertwined, and mirrored each other. And when Teresa Lancaster received her own copies of the ad and letters, she knew immediately what they were referring to. She had long remembered some of the abuse that Maskell had inflicted on her and even went so far as to make sure that she knew his whereabouts as an adult from the fear he still inflicted on her. However, that same fear kept her from publicly speaking out, as did a desire to protect her deeply, devoutly Catholic mother in her waning years. When she got her letter in the ad, she said, quote, I was confused, yet excited that someone out there was going to take action. Just a few days later, Teresa called Beverly Wallace and explaining what she was calling about, she asked one question about the person the team was investigating. Who are you talking about? For fear of influencing her answer, Wallace simply said, why don't you tell me? Joseph Maskell was Teresa's answer. The archdiocese wanted corroboration. They just got it. On August 25th, 1994, Jean, going by Jane Doe, and Teresa as Jean Rowe to protect their anonymity, jointly filed a $40 million lawsuit against Maskell, the Archdiocese of Baltimore, the School Sisters of Notre Dame, Archbishop Keeler, and Dr. Christian Reichster. In essence, it felt like the two were taking on the entire Catholic Church with their suit. With Baltimore City looking into the abuse allegations, the women felt confident going into their hearings. They had more than 30 witnesses prepared to give firsthand testimony about their own experiences, and there were expert witnesses on hand as well. According to the complaint, Maskell was being accused of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, including, quote, vaginal intercourse, anal intercourse, cunnilingus, fellatio, vaginal penetration with a vibrator, administration of enemas, hypnosis, threats of physical violence, coerced prostitution, and other lewd acts, physically striking plaintiff and forcing plaintiff to perform sexual acts with a police officer. 
There was even a shocking story from a Holy Cross Parish employee, one that perked up the ears of local law enforcement that they learned of on August 10th, two weeks before the lawsuit was filed. William Story was working as a cemetery caretaker in 1990 when he received an odd request from the pastor, Joseph Maskell. Maskell told Story to get a front loader vehicle and take it out to the very back, most reclusive corners of the cemetery where he would meet him. He instructed Story to start digging a hole about 10 by 20 feet. And when he arrived, Story was confused to see the priest with various boxes wrapped in black plastic that Maskell simply dumped into the hole and then told Story to cover the disturbed area as inconspicuously as he could. Story relayed the story to Ted Nugent, the Baltimore Sun reporter who covered the case extensively, and he related himself to an anonymous source who goes by the name Deep Throat. Deep Throat allegedly worked as a sex crimes detective and has remained an anonymous source for years to those investigating Maskell. And it was Deep Throat that Story brought out to the Holy Cross Cemetery in a midnight rendezvous. Story warned Deep Throat that, quote, I don't know what all's down there, but I know where it is. Before it was revealed, what all Maskell had buried back in 90. Well, what was revealed was that there were two very different stories that came out of Maskell's secret cemetery burials. Deep Throat claims that they discovered boxes and trash bags full of records, records of various Keogh students' explicit profiles Maskell had written about particular girls, and there were even graphic photos of girls, including students with their uniform shirts off and topless. Quote, we found hard evidence. These girls had their tops open. I saw them with my own damn eyes, Deep Throat later shared. However, when you ask former state attorney's office, Chief of Sex Crimes, Sharon May, she says that she directed the excavation and that she found nothing that directly implicated Maskell. She went so far as to claim in the keepers that she had, quote, no recollection of the photos that Deep Throat claims he saw. And then she corrected herself and gave a secondary outright denial of the photos being there. She refused to charge Maskell with anything because she didn't feel that there was enough credible evidence for the case to stand on its own. Sure, Sharon. Sure. A box full of photos of naked girls isn't evidence of a crime, and I guess it isn't proof of the possession of child pornography in your estimation. But I mean, I don't have my law degree. But sure, let's go with your take. Still, confounding the discovery of these boxes might be in the abuse case against Maskell, the Baltimore County Police felt that they had to reopen the investigation into Sister Kathy's murder, at the very least. They had been told by Jean herself in an interview about her recently recovered memory of Maskell taking her to the dump site of Sister Kathy's body. They were trepidatious, given the nature of recovered memories, but they began the task of reopening the investigation. Though these pictures themselves weren't brought up at the hearings, many other things were, especially vicious, ruthless commentary from the archdiocese lawyers. It was a critical time for the archdiocese when the 94 lawsuit began. The legal action coincided with a papal visit from Pope John Paul II, and maybe more critically, Keeler was up for nomination to become a cardinal in Rome. And don't worry, he did get his red hat which might explain why the church's legal team got so down and dirty right from the jump. The lawsuit was the first case revolving around recovered memories, and the church's lawyers made the claim that the statute of limitations had long since passed for Jane Doe and Jane Roe to make their case. They argued that the suit should have been filed back, quote, within three years from the date it accrued, according to an article in the Maryland Code of the Courts and Judicial Proceedings article. Jean and Teresa side, however, argued that since Jean especially was in the process of recovering repressed memories, the statute didn't apply 
and their suit was still valid within the three-year time frame since she had only begun recovering memories in 1992. The church's lawyers, Michael Lahane, Tommy Harrison, and Kevin Murphy, all made sure to address the Doe Row team as cruelly as they could in an effort to destroy both credibility and reputations. Even prior to the hearings, the church's team forced Jean into a grueling 21-hour interrogation, and they sifted through her private prayer journals to find details that might suggest that she'd fabricated the entire thing. In the courtroom, they asked questions such as if the women would, quote, consider themselves to be a slut, demeaned the concept of recovered memories by claiming the women couldn't have possibly suffered such extensive abuse because of how normal their lives had been up until that point, and they demanded Jean in particular to, quote, look at them while she recounted her memories of explicit abuse. According to Jean in an Inside Baltimore interview, quote, I honestly think they saw how fragile I was and hoped I would break. Break, though. That's not something either woman did, even when, in May of 1995, Judge Hillary Kaplan upheld the statute of limitations, which forced the women to lose on a technicality and had their suits dismissed. Because even if their civil suit was being dismissed, the two women had shared enough damning information on the stand to ensure that they weren't going to be silenced. And this renewed investigation was only just beginning. Because with Jean and Teresa's memories, so too came other memories from within the community. Memories that shed light on other potential suspects and other theories about not only who had harmed so many girls at Keough over the years, but their statements resurrected new questions and leads about who had killed Sister Kathy. Every family has that one open secret, that one thing everyone has come to learn through spoken whispers or unspoken understanding that is better left unsaid overall for the good of the family. But when it came to two women in the Baltimore area, they each had a family secret that they were willing to share. Two similar secrets, but from two different families. That said, each woman was convinced that one of their own uncles was the man behind the murder of Sister Kathy. Debbie Yon came forward to investigators after the lawsuits were dismissed to claim that during a conversation with her heavily drinking mother, she had heard a story about her uncle Ed, a body in a trunk and bloody clothes. However, when Debbie confronted her mother in the sobering light of day, she merely paled and denied that she had ever said such a thing about Uncle Ed, otherwise known as Edgar Davidson. Edgar Davidson was known to be a bit of a ne'er-do-well who had often tried to pick up teenage girls at Rock Glen High School, which butted up right against Keough. He was a man with violent tendencies and what seemed like a little bit of a dissociative stroke. His first wife shared an account that on November 7, 1969, she vividly remembers Ed coming home with blood on his shirt and a refusal to explain his appearance or why he chose to get new tires on their car immediately after. And when the news of Kathy's disappearance broke, she recalled how he only, quote, smirked and laughed at the news feature one night, as he calmly claimed that, quote, by the time they find her body, it'll be winter. Sharon Smith, another local, believes that her uncle, Billy Schmidt, was the one who actually killed Sister Kathy, though. She recalls a fight between her mother and father after her father had started drinking heavily for no known reason to the family. Except, her father claimed, this personality shift was because, quote, we killed a woman and put her behind the shop. As it was, Kathy's body was found close to the Schmidt family home and the family business. And wouldn't you know it, but Billy Schmidt was neighbors with Kathy. 
He lived about 10 steps from her door and was known to have a fascination with the nun, her case, and the Catholic Church as a whole. Now, Billy was actually Sharon Schmidt's father's brother, Uncle Billy. Her father was Roland Schmidt, who confessed to us killing a woman and putting her behind the shop. Billy, the one who lived next to Kathy, was said to have hallucinations about, quote, the woman in the attic after Kathy went missing. And the woman was actually a mannequin he kept up there. A mannequin cloaked in a nun's habit. Sharon Smith's belief that her uncle killed Kathy was only strengthened when she heard an interview her deceased brother Brian gave to an investigator, one that showed how deeply plagued he was by the entire case surrounding Sister Kathy. In the interview, he shared that he was at Billy's apartment around the time that Kathy disappeared and remembers a sudden flurry of activity, something heavy in a rug and the mysterious rug-covered object being placed in a trunk. His uncle Billy was suddenly calling his friend Skippy to come over, and so too did another uncle. Bob, Billy's brother, Bob. Brian believes that the rug covered item was sister Kathy's body and that quote, Bobby kept me occupied, Billy did it and Skippy covered. He was threatened by his uncles to never mention any of what he had witnessed that day. Brian and Sharon's mother believes that their father Roland also played a hand in the murder as he came home with a bloody shirt, arms, forearms, even though he himself had no injuries. This occurrence had just taken place before his personality shift and his heavy drinking. There are other strange incidents within these two stories that carry just enough weirdness to make you pause and really consider. Ed Davidson's wife received a necklace with a green stone and what looked to be a wedding bell unexpectedly from him, and she long suspected the necklace was never intended to be hers in the first place. Strange how both Debbie Yon and Sharon Schmidt both have accounts of men in their family coming home with bloody shirts around the same time that Kathy went missing in the area that she went missing from. And I've got to ask, how many uncles and dads were just rocking around with bloody shirts in 1960s Baltimore? There's a strange call made to the Jim Turner radio show in 1976 with the caller claiming that he knew who had Sister Kathy's rosary, of all things. So, what to make of all that, honestly? Two different women with two wildly eyebrow-raising stories that seem to play into an already eyebrow-raising case. I think it's here that we should ask our first round of hashtag fucking questions. One, was the administration of Keel aware of the abuse that Masco was inflicting on girls? It's been alleged that the teachers of Keel had some inkling of an idea that something weird was happening between Masco and the girls he called down to his office. If that's true, did the teachers or any teachers beyond Sister Kathy, really know about the abuse? And if they did, why didn't they stop it? Were the students the only ones Masco allegedly threatened, or did he threaten other teachers who found out about the abuse as well? Was it Sister Kathy's idea to go to the public school to try teaching as a nun in a secular environment, or was the decision influenced by her trying to raise the alarm about Masco? Did Kathy ever get a chance to tell someone about her suspicions about Masco? What did Sister Russell know about Kathy's suspicions? Has she been hiding something herself all these years? Was Sister Russell threatened to remain silent about anything she knew? What did Jerry Koob know about Kathy's suspicions? If we're to believe that Koob really didn't know about Jerry, Kathy's suspicions, then that would explain why he didn't point to Maskell as a suspect in her disappearance. If he did know, though, why didn't he point to Maskell? Where was Kathy approached on the night that she disappeared, and how was she apprehended? 
was it actually Kathy that her flight attendant neighbor saw in the complex parking lot at 8.30 that night? Why did Sister Russell call Jerry Koo before the police that night? What was the true relationship between Jerry and Kathy? Why did Kathy's killer leave her car in both such a conspicuous spot and so close to her apartment? Why was Kathy's car so covered with mud and debris when it was found? Is there a connection between Kathy's murder and the murder of Joyce Malecki? Why did Maskell prove to be so elusive to police when they tried to interview him about Kathy's disappearance and later her murder? Why did Maskell bury the boxes of files in the Holy Cross Cemetery in 1990? What was he trying to hide by doing so? Who called into the Jerry Turner radio show? Was it really Ed Davidson like he seemed to confess in the Keepers documentary? Who has Sister Kathy's rosary? Was Ed really intending to give his wife the necklace or, isn't as she suspected, a gift that was never intended for her? Did Edgar Davidson have something to do with Sister Kathy's murder? Did Billy Schmidt, his partner Skippy, and his brothers Bob and Ronald have something to do with Sister Kathy's murder? What a coincidence that there is a brother named Bob in all of this. Is Bob Schmidt the brother Bob? Did all of these men have something to do with Sister Kathy's murder. Do any of these men have something to do with Sister Kathy's murder by that same turn of the coin? Where are the boxes of files the police dug up in August 1994 from Holy Cross Cemetery? Now, there's a reason I asked, where are the boxes of files the police dug up in August 94 in Holy Cross Parish Cemetery as the last question for our first hashtag fucking question segment. And that's because they haven't seemed to have been seen since. The files are mentioned in the report from the dig that took place at the Holy Cross Cemetery and the judge presiding over the investigation allegedly saw some of the files in their chambers, but since then, nothing. They were allegedly damaged in a flood and I say that with heavy quotation marks and because of that alleged damage, they were later disposed of. Sharon May, blames the technology of the 90s for the lack of a paper or digital trail for most of the evidence in the case, because actually there's a lot of missing evidence when it comes to the abuse investigation and the murder investigation. We know that at least 40 to 50 people responded to the newspaper ad that Wallace, Dantes, and Maggio put out. Deep Lord himself has claimed that he personally has interviewed up to 100 women about their experiences of abuse at the hands of Maskell. Beverly Wallace even claims that she handed over all of her own files to the city when they reopened the investigation in 94. But as it goes, there is next to nothing by means of a paper trail when it comes to the abuse investigation. Documentation of allegations against Maskell that should exist just seemingly do not, despite the fact that we know so many women have since come forward. There is no record of any complaints or documentation at all about the investigation into Maskell or when Kathy was simply just a missing person. Any and all hard documents from the city just simply disappeared. Let me make that really fucking clear. Baltimore County, who is now overseeing the murder investigation it turned into from the initial persons missing persons investigation, never received any physical evidence from the city when the city was overseeing the missing persons investigation regarding Kathy Sesnick. This evidence includes a letter that was sent to Kathy's younger sister, Maryland, 
And it was postmarked for November 8th, the day after she went missing. The city just never handed it over. And they claim that it's been lost. And I really want to know why. There's something else I need to point out. There have been multiple accusations brought against him, yet Maskell has never been criminally charged. In fact, virtually no priests have been criminally charged in the city of Baltimore when it comes to sex abuse crimes. In 2002, over 50 names of abusive priests were brought forward, but there's only ever been one guilty verdict brought against a priest, and that's because he himself pled guilty. Sharon May claims that in most events, she felt that they wouldn't be able to prove a case beyond reasonable doubt, and that's why she chose not to file charges. Most civil cases followed the pattern that Jean and Teresa faced in that they expired under the statute of limitations or the victims were simply paid out by the church to settle civilly. In 2017, the archdiocese was said to have paid out at least $472,000 to 16 victims of Maskell's abuse. They claim that they have a long-standing policy to offer counseling to victims of clergy abuse, which is what the majority of their payments are said to have stand, to stand for. Seems the archdiocese knows how to play a good PR game. I want to be honest with you guys and share that as we come to the end of our story today, I have struggled with how I wanted to close out today's case. It's as frustrating a case as any I've covered here, namely because it feels like justice is slipping further and further between our fingers as each year passes and with the complex way that so many aspects of this case confound and contradict each other. This November will mark 51 years since Sister Kathy was last seen, and few are remaining individuals who knew her back in 1969. Sister Russell died in 2001 after she left convent life and created an entirely new one for herself in the wake of Kathy's disappearance and death. Peter McKeon, who had been seen at the Carriage House Apartments with Sister Russell, he is well into his 80s and prefers not to be involved at all with the case. Billy Schmidt died by suicide many years ago, claiming he, quote, couldn't stand it anymore to his ex-sister-in-law in a phone call he made just before he died. Even James Scannell, the police officer first on the scene to discover Kathy's body and who long dismissed Jean's account of being taken there, he died in 2016. You know, Magnus, he died in 88, long before any memories of his abuse were publicized. And Joseph Maskell, he died in 2001. He was dead by 62 of a stroke, though a former Keogh student and victim claims that she once found him hiding out in a dementia ward of an assisted living residence before he died. And she claimed, quote, there was nobody home when she confronted him. He'd spent the last few years of his life hiding out in Ireland and only returned to the States three years before his death. He never faced his accusers in court since he had fled to Wexford during the time of the trial, and all of the lawsuits brought against him were dropped by the technicality of the statute of limitations and because one court rejected the repressed memory's validity. Maskell died a fragment of the powerful, terrifying figure he had made himself out to be, and yet it doesn't feel like justice. Even after his death, the news came out that the archdiocese had known about his abuse as early as 1967, when an altar boy, Charles Franz, reported that he had been sexually abused by Maskell to his mother, and his mother filed a formal complaint. In 1990, Franz even met with, at the time, Monsignor Maluli and a slew of canon lawyers who asked him what he, quote, wanted in return for simply walking away from the situation, a meeting that Maluli seemed to forget in 1993 when he claimed that the letter-writing campaign that Jean conducted with her family was the first he was ever hearing of such abuse. 
The church had the opportunity in 67, in 90, in 92, 93, and 94 to do the right thing. But they chose to keep hiding, to deny, and to protect those who were harming the most vulnerable. It never shocks me, the intensity of this particular hypocrisy. Maskell's body was exhumed in 2017, and DNA was collected to be tested against the sample police had found when Kathy's car was found back in 1969. The DNA from Maskell didn't match the DNA from the scene. Maybe I'm biased, but I have to wonder how viable the 1969 sample even was back then, and how viable it remained through the years. With so much other evidence just simply disappearing, getting destroyed, and not following any chain of custody, much less a proper one, I'm hard-pressed to believe a sample collected in 69 has remained untouched and truly viable for this long. I'm also hard-pressed to believe it was even a true sample to begin with. Allegedly, this DNA comes from a cigarette butt found at the scene, and given that the car was found parked across the street from Kathy's apartment complex, I'm skeptical to say the very least. I'm skeptical and filled with hashtag fucking questions, because obviously I have more of those. Many more. What precisely did the Archdiocese know about Maskell's abuse, and when did they know it? The church had reports from 1967 that Maskell was a danger to children because of the abuse he inflicted on Charles Franz that was reported. Why didn't they act then? Why did the now Bishop of Wilmington, Delaware, Maluli, lie about Gene Hargadon's 1993 account being the first that he had learned of abuse by Maskell when he met with Charles Franz in 1990? What happened to the files dug up from Holy Cross Cemetery? Were they really damaged in a flood? Who benefits most from the destruction of the cemetery files? Who's telling the truth? Deep Throat, who claims to have seen the topless photos of young girls in the files, or Sharon May, the state's attorney chief of sex crimes, who claims that they never existed. Why did Sharon May refuse to file charges against Maskell despite the overwhelming evidence to the fact that he was a serial abuser? Was Sharon May running interference for the church, as so many police officers have now come forward to claim that she was? Did the local authorities purposely hinder the investigation into Maskell because of the intensely close ties the city of Baltimore has to the Catholic Church? Why is so much documentation and evidence from the initial investigations missing? Were those same crucial pieces of documentation and evidence purposely destroyed? Why have so few priests in general been brought up on abuse charges, even though so many have been named? Was Maskell protected by both the church and the state? If not, why does it seem that way? And if so, why? Was Maskell's sister Kathy's killer or merely the orchestrator of her murder? And finally, does anyone alive actually know that answer? The location at the heart of this case, Archbishop Keogh High School, is much like several details of the case, gone. The school, even after merging with Seton High School in 88, closed its doors forever in 2017. Perhaps it was for the best. Some places can't ever be exercised of the evils that took place within it. No matter what lens you view this case through, though, there's something particularly chilling about it. It speaks to a network of unbalanced protection and enforced silence, of measures of accountability failed in favor of backroom dealings, of shame and secrecy and sideways glances at society 
too often take. It speaks to the abuse of power in the most damning way and in instances against our most vulnerable. This is one of those cases that truly crawls into a space within your head and your heart, and it lodges itself there permanently. It's one I haven't been able to forget since I first heard about it three years ago, and I hope it's one that impacts you today as well. Even though it's been half a century since Sister Kathy Sesnick went missing, that doesn't mean her story is still lost. Because as one Baltimore County officer pointed out, quote, just because it's been about 50 years, that doesn't mean anyone has ever been officially cleared. There's still justice to be found, everybody. Here's hoping it's close. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you all. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to the newest member of the DAW Patreon crew, Marissa Finnerty. Your support truly means the world, so thank you for keeping the figurative DAW lights on. I have a super exciting and special announcement to share that tomorrow, Tuesday, August 18th, I'll be appearing on NBC via their LX network as the feature for their hashtag True Crime Tuesday segment. I'll be talking all things dark as hell, so check your local listing for where to catch NBCLX at 8.45 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or catch the live stream at lx.com live. I'll be sharing more information about your local listings over on the DAW Instagram. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop and after you've checked out my NBC interview, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at, at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Podcast. Again, that's all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasshellpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkasshellpodcast to see what level might tickle your spooky fancy. The August DAW Spooky Crew exclusive episode is dropping today because my ever so gracious DSC subscribers kindly allowed me to postpone its regularly scheduled programming on the 13th of each month since I had to help coordinate the surprise engagement of my twin sister this past Friday. So thank you guys for that graciousness. And also I'm so pleased and happy for my twin sister and her fiance, Casey. Not only that coming up on the calendar, but keep an eye out for this month's wine and weirds live stream that'll be taking place this Thursday. You truly don't want to miss any of this. So come be a part of Da Spooky Crew and Da Patreon Crew in general. Patreon.com slash Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I will catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again. Yeah.